0: Let us then return to Acts chapter three. And I expect this will be the last time that we will look at this chapter as we seek to make our way through uh, the book of Acts. And indeed this book is an encouragement to the church and we should be fully conversant with it. And we should be encouraged to see what the early church managed to do and achieve with no resources other than the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was working with them by his Holy Spirit. And this is truly what we need above all things. We can have buildings, we can have money, we can have people, we can have knowledge, we can have Bibles and commentaries and libraries full of good books and we can have a heritage, we can think about the things that happened in times past. But friends, if we don't have the Holy Spirit with us, working with us, working through us, then we will never grow and we will never be encouraged. But this people here, the primitive Christians, they had none of the things that we have, yet they had the blessing. And we're continuing, therefore, to look at the early church that we ourselves might be encouraged and that we ourselves might look at our Christianity in the light of what we see here, because we know that the church was going from a through a transitional period. It was from the Old Testament church into the New Testament church. It was the Jewish church in, going into the Gentile church or the Christian church. And therefore, there was a a period of transition. But there should be things that what we find here in the early church should be in every church, in every age of the church. Well, we want to look at the second section of this chapter this evening. Last Lord's Day evening, we really looked at verses 1 to 11, and we titled the sermon there, Jesus the Healer. And we noticed three things. We noticed first that this was the first time that this paralytic, who was over 40 years old, this was the first time that he walked, and he did more than walk. We are told leaping as well and praising God. this was the first time for this poor individual. What a change the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brought to that individual. And we notice too here that this was the first recorded miracle that we might say was performed by the the early Christian church. It's the first one that's been recorded for us in the scriptures. We know there were others For instance, in verse 43 of chapter 2, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And here we only have one. This one's been recorded for us. And again, if we will go on, as we will, we'll come to chapter 5 and verse 12. There we read, By the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders, wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in solomon's porch and we also notice therefore that this was the man after he had been healed it was his first real occasion when he engaged fully in the public worship of god because of his disability beforehand The full function of the house of God, or the full facilities of the temple were not available to him. But now they were, because he had been transformed. And we would maybe ask ourselves, as we seek to introduce our sermon tonight, why was this miracle recorded and not others? There were many others, but why this one? Why has it been singled out? Well, I can only give you one real reason. It surely becomes clear that what we have here is a picture of what Christ will do or what Christ is doing when he is reconciling mankind to himself. It becomes clear that the physical healing of the lame man is a sign of the messianic salvation in all its fullness, in all its dimensions. Here was a man who was powerless from the very beginning of his life, and gloriously, wonderfully, divinely, he has been transformed. And this is what Jesus Christ is doing through his messiahship. What do we find, for instance, in verse 25? Here, the Peter is speaking to his brethren, ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And this man being rescued from a pathetic lifestyle is a picture of what Jesus Christ is doing to the people of Israel, what was offered to them here, and what was going to be offered to the heathen Gentile nations, full and free salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this miracle here is really a picture of that. Well, I want to highlight one or two things from these verses for our edification tonight. And we seek the Lord's blessing as we engage in preaching. The title I want to give is Preaching Christ. Preaching Christ. This surely is the main function of the gospel preacher, or we might say the minister or the the teaching elder. This is really what is to dominate his life, all his study whether it be in the scriptures or in theology or in secular knowledge, which can be useful. It can be a handmaiden to help you to proclaim Christ. Indeed, all knowledge is useful. It's not to be despised. It may not be religious, it may not be Christian, but all knowledge ultimately can be used to fine tune the preaching of the gospel. And when the preacher comes to preach, ultimately his great role, his great task, his great duty, his great honor is to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we find here. You will be used to a preacher coming and reading a a chapter or a portion of scripture, and he'll choose maybe one verse as a text, or he'll choose a paragraph or or a chapter. And that text that verse or that passage, he will regard as his text. Well, Peter didn't have that there. Here he was, he was going to the, to the temple at three o'clock for the hour of prayer, for the time of prayer during when they would offer the evening sacrifice. He didn't have scrolls with him. He didn't have manuscripts. He didn't have a, a, a Bible in his hand like we can carry our Bibles. Yet what happened there when he healed the paralytic, if you like, that was his text. That's what he took to preach from. It was a a living text. It was a, a text that they could see all around them. Here was a man who couldn't walk and had to be brought and laid at this beautiful gate looking for alms day after day. And now, because of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man was transformed. He was a living text, if you like, a physical text. And the apostle Peter then grabbed that opportunity as he should. And he began to preach to the people there about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, for instance, "'And as the lame man which was healed, held Peter and John, all the people ran together and to them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. You know, Peter didn't need to put a notice in a newspaper. Peter didn't need to put a a notice anywhere, preaching here at three o'clock. No. He, through the Lord Jesus Christ, performed a wonderful, glorious miracle, and the people ran to him. He had a, a congregation gathered before him. And Peter being an apostle and being one filled with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in him and filled with the Holy Spirit, he went out therefore and took that opportunity to preach Jesus Christ. And I put it to your friends, this is the primary duty of the gospel minister. He's not to get involved in secondary issues. He is to make clear to his congregation, no matter how large, no matter how small, no matter how dignified, or no matter how simple they may may be, he is to bring upon them that they might hear and know about the Son of God who came down from heaven in order to save sinners. And he's not to be distracted. And this is what happened here an audience gathered. And Peter, first of all, he began to say to them, verse 12, Peter saw it. What did he see? He saw the crowd. He saw the amazement. He saw the wonder. He saw an opportunity, and he took it. Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Why are you wondering at this? Now we may well ask, well, We would wonder at it. No, but Peter's saying, why are you wondering at it? Because they were looking to Peter, and they were looking to to John, who went with them. And they were saying to themselves, inwardly, well, these men must be special men. They must be holy men. They must be upright men. Because they could never do this unless they were something special. And what does Peter say? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our power or holiness, we had made this man to walk? What's he doing here? He's doing this, friends. He's like John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. He wants to deflect the attention that people are putting upon him and upon John And they must look unto another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the way with all of us. We are so inclined to look upon individuals. We're so inclined to see a man and to hear a man's voice. And sometimes if the preacher might be a good preacher, what do we do? We begin to cling to that preacher. And we all have our favorite preachers. Is it not true that some people go from one congregation to another congregation to another congregation? And what are they? They're nothing but sermon pleasers. That's all they are. And they're looking to the man. Well, if you fall into that category, friend, it's time you woke up. It's time you began to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, because whatever the preacher is, the preacher cannot save you. The preacher didn't die for you. The preacher didn't go to Calvary. The preacher's not your substitute. Whoever he is, no matter how great he is, he's not to be looked upon as your savior. You must look unto another, and you must hear about another. And this is what Peter did here. He begins then to outline the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This must be the sum and the substance of our preaching. Now, we might say to ourselves, well, we know about Jesus. We don't need to know anymore. I tell you, you do. The scriptures tell you, you do. Because no matter how much you know about him, you can never know enough. And friends, if we shall be in eternity with him, what a thought, what a pleasant thought, what a joy to think that we'll spend eternity with Christ. Well, you'll still be learning in eternity because, as we have said, and we're not ashamed to repeat it, he is the most complex individual you will ever encounter. And you can glory in him and you will be lost in his glory throughout all the ages of eternity. And therefore... We must hear about him. The preacher is to be an ambassador for Christ, and he is to tell clearly, plainly about Christ, about this person. It's very interesting too that in the section we looked at last week in verse six, for instance, When Peter spoke to the paralytic who was expecting to get some money, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now Peter says Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that was a term of disdain. That was regarded as an insult. But what Peter was teaching this man here And because it's in God's word, he is teaching us that even from Nazareth, a place that was frowned upon, the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself there. But this one, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one that performed this miracle. It is in his name. It is by his power. And therefore... He goes on, after highlighting this derogatory term that was used in a disdainful manner, he goes on to tell them, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth is also a number of other things, and we are to focus upon them this evening. Well, what does he say first then about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he touches on the most contentious issue of all, or the most contentious description of the Savior of all. Even today, this is contentious, because Peter claims that Jesus of Nazareth, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, from that place of ill repute, this Jesus is the Son of God. What do we find here in verse 13? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his Son, Jesus. That's why this miracle has been performed. It has been performed through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Now, I hope there is none here who will deny it. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is perfect man. And he is perfect God. One person. Two natures. Oh, we don't understand it. Friends, we don't understand this. A finite mind cannot get our minds around this truth, but it is true. And his life demonstrates the fact that he was the Son of God, and he is the Son of God. This is a a bone of contention that we have with Muslims. We have one or two things we might say in common with them. But very few. But this is one thing that we don't have in common with them. They will recognize, and I will use that word guardedly, they will recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ, I should say. But they don't recognize him as being the Son of God. Now we looked at this a few weeks ago, and I don't wish to replicate what we said there, but basically what they will say to us is that Jesus never actually said he was the Son of God. Now there is some element of truth in this. We can go through the New Testament, and we really don't come across clear statements where Jesus said, i am the son of god but he did the things that only God could do he accepted worship prayer is offered to him something that if he's not the son of god or if he's not god in the flesh that would be idolatry there is a very a verse in, or two verses in mark chapter 14 which are very apt and appropriate for us as we consider Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus was on trial. This is a time just before his crucifixion, and we're told in Mark chapter 14 at verse 61, going on to 62, But he held his peace and answered nothing. He answered nothing when people were quizzing him. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And basically that question is, art thou the Christ, art thou the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Who's the Son of the Blessed, or who's the Blessed? This is Almighty God. And basically what the high priest is asking him, are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And after he gave that answer, there was uproar, and they cried out, Blasphemy! Away with them. And indeed, friends, if he was not the Son of God, it would be blasphemy. But he is and was the Son of God. And this is what Peter's telling them here. The God of our fathers hath glorified his Son, Jesus. He is the Son of God. And when we study the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we get to know God himself. There, friends, if you want to know God, Study Christ. God reveals himself in his word. But God also has fully revealed himself in his son. And Jesus said, I and my father are one. Who could say that but the son of God? And Christian, you must hold on to this. Your savior is God in the flesh no holy man could save you no holy angel could save you not a legion of holy angels could save you but the son of god has he is god in the flesh he goes on verse 14 but ye denied the holy one and the just there we have two terms which are basically much the same the holy one There's none like Christ, none. Again, we must hold on to this tenaciously. We must realize that our savior is sinless and he could never never satisfy divine justice if he was not sinless. He had to offer up a perfect sacrifice. No one else could do that. No one else but one who was absolutely sinless And Christian, you must rejoice, because your sins, which are great, which are many, even this evening your sins are great, and they are many, but they have been laid upon a perfect sacrifice, upon a perfect substitute, one who was sinless, the holy one, the just one. There's none holy, there's none truly righteous, but this one. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the one you have your hope in. The one who was condemned. And friends, he was really condemned. He really was. When he went to Calvary, he was truly crucified. When he went to Calvary, he knew the wrath of God like no other person has ever known. We think of the terrible judgments of God upon the earth. We think of the great flood what a terrible judgment that would have been we think of sodom and gomorrah fire and brimstone raining down from heaven what were they in comparison with the full wrath of god being poured out upon our blessed substitute nothing in comparison nothing whatsoever He was holy and he was just, and he would have felt that condemnation. He would have felt that, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. That punishment, friends, would have broken anyone, but it did not break the Son of God because His. Divine nature upheld his human nature. Oh, mysterious things, the cross. No wonder we speak of it. Glorious and wonderful things. But ye denied the Holy One unjust. Do you see the contrast here? And desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Do you see the contrast? Here's the just one, the holy one. He was before you. He lived a perfect life. And no one could accuse him of sin, not even the devil, not even his enemies, not even Judas who had betrayed him. And what did the people want? They wanted a murderer instead of the holy one. The contrast there. Here, Peter, in the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, There's a kind of, if you would say, a barb in his preaching. Yes, he's fully preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's preaching it in such a way in order that this people might see their sin, this great contrast. God looks upon this one as the holy one and the just one. And what about you? You wanted a murderer instead of the one whom God declared to be holy and just. He goes on, another title he uses for preaching Christ. We find it in verse 15, and killed the prince of life. There again, the contrast, the prince of life, Jesus Christ. What does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. But you've killed the prince of life. What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this, he says? You, here, the prince of life was among you, and you've crucified him. Oh, what a terrible thing. Whom God hath raised from the dead, because death could not hold him. The prince of life, He must have life. He has life. And he rose from the grave, breaking the bands of death. We looked at it before, but it's no harm in quoting it again. John chapter one, verse four, talking about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Whatever life we have, friends, whether it be physical life, whether it be spiritual life, or whether it be eternal life, it all comes from Jesus Christ. In thee we live and move and have our being. All life comes and is sustained by Jesus Christ. And you've killed the Prince of Life. Can you imagine how they must have felt? Can you see the conviction coming upon them when Peter's opening up about Jesus of Nazareth being the Prince of Life? And you have crucified him. You have killed him. They must be wondering, was they ever going to get any good news here? Another term he uses is in verse 18. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. Here's another title, another term for Jesus of Nazareth. He is Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ means anointed. And it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And all throughout the scriptures, the people of Israel were looking forward to that day when the Messiah would come. And here the Messiah has come, according to Peter. And what have they done? They have crucified him, they have killed him. And let's be clear, let's be clear. It may well be that tonight, we're in the same position as these people that Peter is speaking to. Oh, we haven't crucified Christ, of course not. We cannot be guilty of that particular sin because we weren't there. But if you look at the sin, if you examine the sin, if you go to the root of the sin, What is it? It is quite simply, they rejected him. And that led to them then crucifying him. But that's the root of it. It is rejection. And we are certainly capable of that in our day and in our generation and even in the house of God. But no matter what, Peter says, no matter what. The prophets all prophesied that Christ would indeed suffer and die. And it has been fulfilled. It was according to scripture. Now that will not excuse their actions, of course not. But it was all part of the plan of God in the history of and the outworking of redemption. This one therefore was attested, was approved, was endorsed by heaven. That's what he's saying to them. And the cut is, and you have rejected him. If you like, the whole force of heaven And all the approval of heaven rested upon Jesus of Nazareth. And you said, away with him, crucify him. Well, finally, there is another term that he uses here. And it's a prophet. Verse 22, for Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Peter's reminding them of Moses, the great lawgiver, the one that the people would venerate. And he reminds them that Moses predicted that God would send a prophet. And this is the prophet. There was other prophets after Moses, but Moses was talking about a real particular individual. And this is that prophet that Moses highlighted, this one that was going to come, and you must listen to him. Not just simply listen to him, but obey him. That's what it means. And of course, they crucified him. Our catechism tells us about Christ, how he executes the office of a prophet? And the answer is Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. And Christ was the one who was speaking through all the prophets in the Old Testament. He was revealing the word of God for our, for their salvation and for our salvation. That's what a prophet does. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came and preached the gospel, He was revealing the word of God for our salvation and for their salvation, and they rejected him. Well, you can imagine, these people who gathered to hear or gathered to find out what was going on, they got a sermon, and we just simply have the headings here. They get a sermon about Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they crucified. And all through that sermon, there are contrasts between what Christ is and how they treated him. And therefore, he comes to the point of application, which is vitally important. If you're ever going to preach Christ, it's not just simply enough to preach him, to preach about him, to hold him up. Yes, that's all part of it. But there must come this application when we say, so what? So what? You've told us about Jesus. So what? Well, here's the so what. Verse 19, repent. That's the so what. You need to change your mind. You need to change your viewpoint. Repent, ye therefore, and be converted. Maybe this is what we need to do tonight. Maybe it's high time that we have repented We've heard about Jesus Christ tonight and on other occasions and from other voices. You are not ignorant. You must therefore repent because Christ demands a response. These people initially rejected him and by the grace of God, they were under grace. They were in the day of grace and they were still getting an opportunity to embrace Christ as he was freely offered in the gospel. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. What is repentance? Well, it's a sense of sin. But it's more than that. It's a true sense of sin. In other words, it's a biblical sense of sin. We could say that Judas had a sense of sin. But that's not enough. we need to have a true sense of sin. A true sense of sin that we might see what a heinous thing sin is. It is ultimately rebellion against God. It's children of the dust shaking their fist at Almighty God. That's what it is. It is high treason a true sense of sin. But repentance is more than that even. It's an apprehension of the mercy of God. You know, friends, some people have a true sense of sin, but they don't have any sense that God is merciful towards them. Well, this is what they must know in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's great in one sense to have a a true conviction of sin, but our eyes need to be opened up and we must understand that there is mercy with our God. He will receive us. He will receive us. And that's preaching Christ. That's holding him out. That's telling people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for he will receive Yes, our sins are terrible. And what's more, friends, you don't really know about your sin. You don't. You may have some apprehension, and you may have a true sense of sin, but you don't know it as God knows it. But you need to have a sense of God's mercy, that God is merciful towards you. But it's only in Christ outside of Christ, our God is a consuming fire. And there's one person you don't want to meet outside of Christ. It's the one true and the living God. But in Christ, he is merciful. And repentance means also to have a grief and a hatred of sin. And the more that we know repentance, the more that we will hate sin. Lastly, and very briefly, they're told to repent, but it's followed by a warning. Verse 23, And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Everyone that will not hear Christ, and hear is not just simply hearing with the ears, it means obedience, it means believing, it means trusting, it means coming to Him. If you will reject Him, there is No hope, none whatsoever. It doesn't matter what a clergyman will say at your funeral. There is no hope unless you have Christ as Lord and Savior. Preaching Christ. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. Let us pray together. O oh Lord, realizing our sinfulness, we marvel that Christ is preached unto us at all. O oh, help us, we pray, that we might all come to him. Bless thy word to us. Hear us only for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.